Trust. Well, let's open with a word of prayer and let's dig into the word. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord. We ask, Lord, as we go to your word right now, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Lord, the words of man are a waste of time, but the word of God transforms our lives. And I just thank you for everyone who's here, those that are home, sick, watching on live stream. Uh, your blessings be upon them, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Okay, quick review. Again, First and Second Chronicles was originally written as one book. It's now, uh, mainly it focuses on the line of King David, which means it's also focusing on the line of Jesus because he came through King David. We talked about it at the beginning of Chronicles. It started really broad with Adam and it went through the line of Seth and it went all the way down to Noah. When it gets to Noah, it's still broad because everyone in this room is related to Adam and everyone in this room is related to Noah. But then when it gets to Noah, it talks about his three sons and it leaves two of them behind and it goes through the lineage of Shem. Why is that? Because that's the line through whom Jesus came. And so even as we're reading this genealogy, it's always pointing to Jesus. Jesus is always the answer. He's always the one it points to. And again, it's pointing to the lineage of David. We'll see some of that tonight, but ideally it's gonna eventually get to Jesus. Now what has happened is second Kings ended with all of Israel and all of Judah having been carried away into captivity. Israel has been in captivity quite a bit longer. Remember the 10 northern tribes have been carried off. And the, why were they carried away into bondage? Why were they carried away? Because they had become unfaithful to God. We're going to see in tonight's first verse of chapter 7 that it's not, or chapter 9, excuse me, it's not because... It's not because there was a political problem. It's not because they were having a war against another country. It's because they became unfaithful to God that righteous judgment came. And I think we need to learn that as a nation, amen? Too often we think it's a political problem. We should vote, absolutely should vote. But it's not a political problem, it's a spiritual problem. If people gave their lives to the Lord, we wouldn't have abortion anymore, amen? If people got on fire for God, all the liquor stores would start closing, amen? If people started walking with the Lord, the divorce rate would go down and there wouldn't be kindergarten teachers wanting to teach our kids about being transsexual, amen? All that would just go away. So there really needs to be a spiritual revival. Well, sadly, Israel had been blessed by God, called by God, gifted by God, given the word of God, put into the land of promise, gave them victory over all their enemies. And then what did they do? And it really all started with King Solomon. Because remember, King Solomon had... Over a th between wives and concubines, over a thousand women. And what did he start doing? He started pleasing them by allowing them to worship their gods. And he was setting up altars to their false gods. So God brought righteous judgment and drugged them off into captivity. Not right away. Remember, he, he tore the kingdom in half. And again, Israel did not have one godly king in the book of Kings. Not one. They're all ungodly. And then Judah had some godly kings. So they survived longer. So second Kings ends and everybody's in captivity in Babylon. Now in Chronicles, we're going to go from the Jews pre-exile, before they were exiled out of, out of Israel, to the post-exile Jews. So what's going to happen is, at the end of this genealogy, we're going to see that they're all headed back to Jerusalem. And by the way, this is a big deal, because no one's been there for 70 years. Now there was someone, Assyria first took over the nation. They had you know, a scattering of people there, but they had removed all the children of Israel. So the people that are gonna go back to Israel, many of them have never lived in Israel. And they're gonna go back to Israel to rebuild the kingdom and to rebuild the temple, having never seen it and having never been there before. 
And what happens is they've been in Babylon for 70 years. And most of them have become a part of that culture. And many of them are very successful there. And they're, they're raising families there. And now they're going to be told that they can go back to Israel. And what is Israel? It's, it, looks like a, it looks like I've been hit by a bomb. It's desolate. We know that when Ezra sees it, his heart breaks. When Nehemiah sees the wall is down, his heart breaks. And so these, these godly men and women who after 70 years in exile are going to make the conscious decision when the opportunity takes place to leave their comfort zone and go back and rebuild the kingdom that God had set aside for them. Boy, that's a great message for all of us. Amen? That we can get so caught up in our comfort zone that we never want to be uncomfortable. And if we don't ever get uncomfortable, we'll never be as usable for the kingdom of God. It's just that simple. That's the main context of tonight's chapter. So grab your outline. You're going to notice that the top couple parts there were on the previous outline, but I added another chapter at the bottom. So we saw, may we not miss out on God's highest. And we saw in chapter five, just briefly, remember there were two and a half tribes when they went into Israel that decided to camp out east of the land of promise. They just stayed outside the land of promise because all the enemies had been destroyed. There, were, there was great grazing for the cattle. And they said, well, we you know, we know that's the promised land over the Jordan. We're just going to stay out here because all the battles have been won and we don't want to fight any more battles. We just kind of want to retire on this side. And sadly, we know that the first people to get attacked were the ones that were outside of God's highest, the ones that didn't enter into the land of promise, the ones who were afraid of the giants. Let me tell you right now, we don't need to fear giants, but we do need to fear God. And because they feared the giants more than they feared God, they didn't enter into the land of promise. And guys, because we fear the world more than we fear the Lord, we will stay in our comfort zone. And again, I say this all the time, if the enemy can't take us to hell with him, he wants to render us ineffective for the kingdom of God until we get there. He wants to sit on the sideline and keep it to ourselves and, and be ashamed of the gospel and just be more, be more worried about being, uh, again, mixing in with the world than being faithful to God. And Lord, help us. So we saw the compromised enemy of calling. They settled for less than God's highest. And then we saw that we're all uniquely gifted. And he talked about the Levites, and we'll talk some more about them tonight. And the Levites were the ones that God uniquely called and gifted to serve the people. They had no inheritance in the land of promise because they were called to be spread out throughout the land and to serve in the temple or the tabernacle before the temple was built. And so they led spiritually and they had no inheritance on this earth. And I think that's interesting because you know what? Having a lot of inheritance on this earth can render us ineffective for doing things spiritually because they did, weren't worried about their crops. They weren't worried about anything else. What were they worried about? Serving the Lord. And God used them mightily. And we saw that each tribe had different gifts. And when they all used their gifts, then the tabernacle could move in the wilderness or the temple could be tended to in Jerusalem. And the same is true for us as believers. You have gifts I don't have. I may have gifts you don't have. And we all need to be using our gifts for the church to uh, you know, function properly. Amen? Somebody doesn't set up the chairs, we're all sitting on the floor. Somebody doesn't, you know, do the sound that we, we can't hear. You know, if nobody turns on the AC, right? All that stuff that seems so practical, but you know what? That's the heart of a servant. Now, we're going to look at these three chapters tonight. Uh, seven and eight will be briefer. 
Because what's going to happen is we're going to see their genealogies, but chapter 9 has more places where it interjects some things. So we'll spend most of our time tonight in chapter 9. We will look at chapter 7 and chapter 8. So, chapter, so may we not miss out on God's calling. Compromise the enemy of calling. We're all uniquely gifted. We've already covered those. Now pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We're going to see a tribe that is very well known for being mighty warriors but what happens sometimes if we're mighty warriors or if we're mighty wealthy or if we're mightily gifted, sometimes what happens is we cease to be desperate for God. If I've got, you know, $10 million in a bank account, maybe I don't pray as much. If I'm very gifted in my business and, and it's doing really well, maybe I'm not crying out to God as much. I'm not as desperate as I should be. Now, again, if God blesses you that way, it's all God's money. Use it for his glory. At the same time, though, we need to be in a place where we stay humble and broken and desperate before him. Chapter 8, we're going to say, may we be mighty men and women of valor. Again, the Ephraimites were the ones I was talking about that were wealthy and powerful. And now it's the Benjamites who are known for being mighty in battle. And again, you know, if you think you're the strongest guy around, maybe you're not so worried. Maybe you're not as fearful. Who do you think is praying more, the Ukrainians or the Russians? The Ukrainians, they're under attack. They're being, they're, they got a bigger army coming against them, amen? And too often when you're the biggest guy around and you think you don't have to be afraid, you start to trust in your flesh instead of being desperate for the Lord. And then finally, may we return to where God has called us to be. You've heard me say this before. You can take a million steps away from God. It truly is only one step back. And sin and compromise can draw us away from God. Sin separates. And, and when we choose to walk in open rebellion, you hear me say it all the time, rebellion or fellowship, choose one. Because you can't have both. You can't walk in intimate fellowship with God and walk in open rebellion against God at the same time. You just can't do it. And so we're going to see in tonight's text that these people who have been banished to Babylon are going to be called back to, to Israel. They're going to be given an opportunity to go back and fix what their grandparents and great-grandparents had failed. They're going to be given an opportunity to leave Babylon and to leave the world and go serve the Lord. And that's an example for us to follow. Also, don't envy another's gifting. Just be faithful with God's calling for you. A lot of people struggle because they want to have a gift that someone else has. I, if I was leading worship, nobody would come to church here. You would all leave. I'm not called to do that. And we all have different gifts and praise God for that. But I want to tell you that no matter what gift you have, it's going to require sacrifice and work to be faithful to it. Amen. When you guys are sleeping Sunday morning at eight, there's people out here setting up stuff. There's people out here doing stuff to get it ready for you. Amen. So they're getting up early on their day off, coming out here and sweating for Jesus. That's a good thing. Amen. The same is true with every ministry in the church. There's people that are, are missing out on being in fellowship because they're ministering to the kids, but they recognize what a high calling that is. And they spend time preparing for that. See, sometimes we think, well, I'd rather have their gifting, not realizing what comes with that calling. The Bible says, let not many of you be teachers. Look, for me, woe unto me if I do anything else. Woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel. There's just no way I can't do what I'm called to do. I, this is, I'm so blessed that I know I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be, doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing, and it's a get-to, not a have-to, and I thank God I get to do this. And the reality is that when we know our calling, it should be that way. Amen? Not, is it my turn? Oh, can someone else fill in for me? Do I have to do it? Who else can fill? No. 
By the way, if you're doing that in our children's ministry, step out, we'll get somebody else. Amen? It's not too late to be used mildly by God. No matter how far away you've walked, you can turn back and you can still be used by the Lord. And then finally down there, the last point I made, be a Christ-like example that your family can follow. We're going to see two examples. We're going to see the example of Saul. And we're going to see the blessing that even though Saul completely blew it, if you guys were here for 1 Samuel, you saw it, completely blew it. He took a place of the high priest. God brought righteous judgment upon him. God ripped the kingdom from him. He was, had a, you know, he was killed in battle. And what's amazing is, we're going to see in the genealogy tonight, that Saul's great-great-grandkids, you know, down that line as you continue on, are still there and are going to be coming back to Israel. See, just because dad blew it doesn't mean God can't continue to use his family. But I will say this, I would much rather be a godly example for my kids to follow than an ungodly one that my kids have to fight through. Amen? And we're going to see that example as well in how godly men have an impact on their family. So let's pick up in chapter 7. Again, we're gonna, this is going to be a lot of genealogy in these first two chapters that don't really, some of them have little breaks where they have little side notes, not so much here, but we're going to look at some, some things that uh, need to be pointed out. So he's been giving the genealogies, if you remember chapter five and six, he's giving the genealogies of the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's nobody else's genealogy, Israel's it now. And by the way, going forward, we don't have Judah and Israel anymore. It's all back to just being Israel. They were divided because of rebellion. They're going to be restored because they're returning back to serve the Lord after having been in bondage. So we know the 12 tribes. It says the sons of Issachar were Tola, Pua, Jashib, Shimron. The sons of Tola were Uzai. You might recognize some of these names. Rephi, Jerel, Jamai, Jibsam, Shemel, the heads of the father's houses. The sons of Tola were mighty men of valor in their generations. Their number in the days of David was 26,600. Now that's saying something. So these 26,600 through the line of Issachar were mighty men of valor. And what that means is that they were faithful to the Lord and they were faithful to their calling and they were men who were willing to go to battle. He had four sons and again, 36,000 warriors in your family. It says 22,600 there when you add them all up later, but uh, 22,600 warriors just in that verse. I used to go places with my three boys who were all pretty good size. And the four of us would be walking together sometimes and people, and someone would say to me, well, don't fight with the Johnston family. My one son's six, five, these big guys, right? Can you imagine you had 22,600 sons coming up behind you? 22,600 people in your family that were ready to go to battle. Everybody's getting out of your way. Amen. And so here we see that there were men of valor. So even in the midst of godlessness, even in the midst of some who are just walking completely away from the Lord, there still remained that remnant that was faithful. Remember when Elijah said, I'm the last one, it's just me. What did the Lord tell him? I got what? I think it's 700. I got 700 more just like you. <laughs> you know, because we can feel that way sometimes. We can feel like we're outnumbered. Just remember, you plus God is a majority, amen? And if God is for you, who can be against you? And this appears again, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be repeated again later in Chronicles. It's going to talk about this, these mighty men of war in Issachar. 
They go down to the family of Benjamin right after that. It says the sons of Benjamin were Bela, Becher, Jadiel, three in all. And then it goes into each of their families. And it says down uh, in verse nine, and they're recorded by genealogy according to their generations, heads of the father's houses, 22,200 men of valor. So here we have more again. These families are coming together and between them, they still have mighty men of valor even in a time when Israel has, is struggling with idolatry, the worship of false gods, and God is still doing a work in and through them. This is before the exile, okay? And they're going to see between verse 1 and 2 of chapter 9, we're going to have a 70-year gap, and now we're going to see these families bringing people back after spending 70 years in Babylon. Notice it says, there, it says the son of a hare. It says many believe that, that, uh, that the tribe of Dan came through them. Because you don't see the tribe of Dan really being mentioned here. And there are three, at least four different passages that would say that. It says in Genesis, mentioned as the son of Dan, the same person that's mentioned here. Hebrews writers sometimes use another word to describe uh, something that was ungodly or loathsome. And that's a term they use there. And it was, must be remembered that the tribe of Dan had made themselves uh, their memory infamous and detestable by the gross idolatry they performed. And so it could be that their name was changed to, to basically saying they were an abomination. So we've got, we've got families with men of valor and we have some within the same family who are ungodly, living abominable lives, uh, totally sold out to idolatry. And it's amazing they can come from the same family. Can I get an amen to that? You can have people raised by the same parents in the same house, taught the same thing, and they all have free will. And we want to make sure we do everything we can to pour into them. But you know, most families, it's rare when you see a family that's got a lot of kids and they're all on fire for God. And that's my prayer for all of us. But the good news is even the ones that aren't on fire, we keep praying because God's not done with them yet. Amen. And God can bring them home. Then he goes into the, de to the descendants of Naphtali, starting there at verse 13. And notice he says there in verse uh, 15, but Zolophed begot only daughters. Uh, Zolophed is one mentioned in Numbers 26, 27, and 36 when the question came to Moses about their inheritance. Remember the females came and they said, hey, we don't have any men in our line. And so all the inheritance always went to the sons and there were no sons, so they were being left out of getting an inheritance. And Moses addressed it and made sure that they were taken care of. So as you read through genealogies, I could sit here all day and go through each name and I could pull stuff out of the Bible and show it to you. But for the sake of time, I'm just trying to pull one or two things out of each family. Verse 20, it's about the family of Ephraim, the sons of Ephraim, the sons of Ephraim. The Ephraimites were famous for their wealth, power, and prowess, but they're also noted for being prideful, uh, insolent, or angry, and quarrelsome. So they were known to be tough. They were known to be strong. They were known to be powerful. And they were also known to be obnoxious. And they were known to be people who got into fights. And sadly, that's so, it's, it happens to all of us. The lesson we should learn from the Ephraimites is that, again, we can let things go to our head. Is there anything that's more nauseating than someone who is pretentious as all get out? It's just nauseating. They want to tell you how great they are. First of all, none of us is great. There's none righteous, no, not one. So get over yourself, amen? But this mentality, don't you hate pride in other people, amen? We all struggle with it, but when we see it in someone else, there's very few things more obnoxious. 
that people look down on you based on how you're dressed or what car you drive or where you live, that whole mentality. And they have this reverence and awe of people who maybe have people take pictures of them while they're saying lines that someone else told them to say. Right? Go stand there, say that. Oh, give me your autograph. Oh, I'm amazed. I, got, I guess who I ran into today. Somebody goes and stands there, you tell them what to say, and then they say it. And then we're in awe of them. Lord, help. Amen? We've lost sight of what really matters. And, and we all can fall into it. Does anybody struggle with pride besides me? And pride goes before destruction, the haughty spirit for a fall. And the Ephraimites were known, were famous for their wealth, their power, their prowess. But they're also insolent, proud, and quarrelsome. I always think of, of Lazarus and the rich man there. You know, the rich man had everything. Everybody fed him, cared for him. Every once in a while, he'd see Lazarus and he'd flip him something. And then they both die. We know the story from Luke 16 that Lazarus is in paradise. He's in Abraham's bosom. It's before Jesus went to the cross. Eventually, then he would move into heaven. And what happens is the rich man's in torment. How's that money working out now? How's that sweet suit you got? How's that working out? Right, all that stuff and that arrogance. You know, and, and God gives grace to the humble, but resists the proud, amen? What got Satan thrown out of heaven? Pride. What made, what made Eve fall for the lie of the serpent? You can be like God. So it's pride. We've all, Lord, every day, I, told, I tell you this, I look in the mirror every morning and I say, you gotta die today, right? We gotta die to ourselves and the Ephraimites, sadly, then it talks about the descendants of Asher, verse 30 to 40. And Asher uh, says their sister Sarah, their sister Shua, the, the Rabins say that the daughters of Asher were very beautiful and they were well matched with kings and priests. So Asher was known for having beautiful women. And again, beauty can be a blessing, but beauty also, like power, like wealth, can lead to arrogance. It can lead to a, a place of being so caught up in yourself and how many, how many likes did I get on my last selfie that I put up? Let me look at me over here and then look at me over here. This is what I had for breakfast. When I was a kid, you had to go to Photomat, you know, make copies of what you had for breakfast and then hand it out at school. No, and no nobody ever did that, amen? <laughs> but, but now everybody acts like we care. Just tragic. Look at me again, look at me again, look at me again. I've seen enough of you. I've seen pictures of some people, I've seen more pictures of some people than the number of times my dad looked at me in my life. I mean, I, I mean, just, I've got one, somebody's related to me, they've got a baby and God bless them. I'm not kidding, 50 posts a day. I'm like, we get it. She's adorable, that's wonderful. Nobody really is looking at her as much as you are. So hear that, so Asher, here's another stumbling block. The no, the another stumbling block is beauty, right? Beauty can cause us to be caught up in ourselves and want everybody to look at us. And I always say this, especially to young women, what you use for bait will determine what you catch. You know, here's a word I don't like, and some Christian men use it, and that's okay. I'm not condemning you. I hate the word sexy. I would never call my wife sexy because that means all I'm looking at is her body. You know what I call my wife? I call her Beautiful call her pretty girl because I look at her soul and her heart and who she is. Amen. And I do think my wife, for me, is the most beautiful woman on this planet because she's a woman God gave me. But I don't, I, I don't, I don't want to demean my wife to just her looks or just, you know, I don't like that. And I just don't think that it gives the value that she deserves. Amen. 
And when you hear guys talking about, oh, see that girl, she's, I'm like, did you not, what did you look at? You didn't have, I, I guarantee you haven't had a conversation with her yet. Amen? What you use for bait will determine what you catch. If you dress scandally, you'll attract guys that all they want is your body. And after they've used it for a while, they'll leave you for another one. Amen? And we need to teach our daughters and our granddaughters to dress with modesty. You know what a godly man's attracted to? A godly woman. You know what a godly woman's attracted to? A godly man. Amen? We should sell for anything less than that. So Asher, again, was often married off to the kings because their daughters were really beautiful. And again, beauty's okay. So as long as we don't make it the priority and the passion of our life, or we don't make our looks more important than how we walk with the Lord. Amen? Chapter 8. May we be mighty men and women of valor. Now in chapter 8, we're going to see more about the Benjamites. And again, and then at the end of it, we're going to see the descendants of King Saul, and then we'll get into chapter 9. So talking about the Benjamites, again, known to be warriors, it says, now Benjamin. Now the tribe was already mentioned in chapter 7, but it's given more mention here. And one reason is because most of these settlements were in the area of Jerusalem, which was the main area that the returning exiles were going to come back to. So here's what's going to happen. When they come back, they're going to come back. They were, they were captured in three waves. They were taken out in three waves. Remember that Daniel was taken in one of those waves, remember? So they were taken out in three waves, three separate times, and they're going to come back in three waves. The first wave with Zerubbabel, they're going to come back and start rebuilding the temple. Then Ezra's going to come back with a group and he's going to start preaching the word of God again and bringing people back to the word. And then finally, Nehemiah's going to come and Nehemiah's going to come with a group and they're going to rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem. So the Benjamites dwelt in Jerusalem. So we're going to see a larger number of Benjamites coming early on because they're going to be brought to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, and again, to restore what has been destroyed. Now, I love this, because when we get done with 2 Chronicles, what's the next book in the Bible after 2 Chronicles? Ezra, and then what? Nehemiah, Nehemiah right? He's the second shortest guy in the Bible, Nehemiah, right? <laughs> well, there's Bildad the Shuhite, so that guy's a little shorter. But here's an old youth group joke, sorry, can't help it. As you thought for 15 years, some of that stuff sticks and never gets away from you. But Chronicles elaborates this material, not simply because of the significance, because who is, who is a descendant of Benjamin? King Saul. Okay? So the Benjamites are going to be emphasized here. We're going to see the emphasis on King Saul a little bit, because King Saul was the one. Remember that they already had a king, and his name was Almighty God. And then they looked around all the other nations and then they wanted a king because everybody else wanted, had a king. So by the way, we don't look around to see what should satisfy us by what everybody else has. We should look to the Lord and be thankful for what he's already given us. Amen? So what do they do? They cry out for a king. And Samuel is sent to the house of Jesse. And Jesse goes in and goes into Jesse's house and he says, one of your sons is going to be king. And he brings out all of his boys but one. He leaves the runt of the litter, David, out watching the sheep. And he goes, oh, certainly this is the one. The Lord says, no, it's not him. Certainly this is the one. No, not him. Oh, look at this guy. He said, no, it's not him. Finally, he says to Jesse, you have any more boys? Well, yeah, we got David. He's out, you know, he's got the teenage little runt of the litter out, you know, watching the sheep. Bring him here. He's the one. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. Amen? That's where that verse comes from. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. So David gets anointed king. 
But when it's brought to the, children, the people of Israel, what do they do? They want someone who's tall and good looking and somebody that would represent them well. Sounds like politics, except maybe not so much anymore. But you know, they want someone tall and charismatic and you know, handsome and all this kind of stuff. And so what do they cry out for? They cry out for King Saul. And then Samuel tells them, if you make him king, he will enslave your children. He will turn you away from the Lord. Paraphrase, by the time it's all done, you're going to regret it. And they cry out for King Saul anyway. And then King Saul starts out and he wins. First of all, when they go to present him, he hides in the equipment. He's hiding when they go to present him as king. And when he comes out, he's the good looking. He says he's head and shoulders above everybody else. He was the Israelite version of Goliath, but not quite as big. And he came out and they went out to battle and they began to win battles. And they said, see, we picked him and look what's happening. And other nations fear us now. Well, then there began to be a battle against the Amalekites. And if you guys remember what happened there, first of all, he was told to go wipe them all out. And instead he only killed some of them and he brought the king of the Amalekites back with him. And when he brought the king back with him, Agag, he paraded him through town, showing that he completely disobeyed what God told him to do because he was a prideful man and wanted to be noticed. Well, what did God do? Agag was brought before Samuel. Samuel cut him into pieces with a knife and told Saul that the king had been ripped from him. The king was ripped from him for two things. He had made sacrifice because he was afraid that the Amalekite army was getting too big and he didn't want to wait for Samuel. So that's like when we step out and we do stuff because we're too, we don't want to wait for God. Well, I want to be married. I'm tired of being single. That's it. Next person walks in the door, I'm marrying them. That's it. And there's this mentality where people will rush to get married just to be married. You know what's worse than being married? What's worse than being single? Being married to the wrong person. Amen? But what happened was because of his impatience, because he wasn't a man of prayer, because he wasn't the one anointed with the Holy Spirit, he said that your kingdom has been ripped from you. Now he brings you to David and Goliath. So now Goliath's coming down to challenge him. The Philistine army's there. They're mounted up. And Goliath's coming down 11 foot 750. What does his voice sound like? I defy the army. You know, Ken Graves times 10, right? I defy the armies, right? Just coming down. And, every, and all the children of Israel are shaking in their boots. And King David is told by his dad, hey, go sit, take this cheese to your brothers. And he goes out to, to the Valley of Elah. If you go to Israel with us, we're going to do another Israel trip. We'll plan one. You go out to, go out to the Valley of Elah and he sees the armies mount, mounted up and he sees the children of Israel shaking in their boots. And here comes Goliath down to the bottom of the valley. Who's the God? You know, bah, right? And he's like, I defy you. And he wants to fight our champion. Well, who's our champion? Saul. But Saul's been told that the kingdom's been ripped from him. So what did Saul say? Dude, I ain't fighting him. Because he already told me the kingdom's ripped from me. That dude will take me apart. Because he was probably eight feet tall, but 11 foot 750, eight feet ain't that big. So David comes and he hears this man talking. And he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that comes against my God? See, David, when David showed up, the Holy Spirit entered the camp. And when David began to speak, what did he see? He didn't see a mere man, a big man against a small man. He saw a mere man against almighty God. See, guys, if God is for us, we need to recognize it's not the world against us. It's the world against the God that we serve, and our God is greater. Amen? And we know what happens. David goes down, wins the battle, and then Saul spends the rest of his life trying to kill David. <laughs> because he knows the people are, Saul is slayed as thousands, and David is tens of thousands. He didn't like that song. He wasn't happy about that. 
But here's the point that's made. So here's King Saul. King Saul eventually gets killed by an Amalekite. Isn't that interesting? He's supposed to kill them all. If you don't put the flesh to death, the flesh will kill you. So one of the Amalekites puts him to death. He dies. David finally takes over. By the way, David keeps having dinner with Saul, even though he throws spears at him. I think I'd learn after the first dinner not to go back to that. Amen? You're sitting at dinner. He tries to throw a spear through you, right? He had opportunities to kill him, but he didn't. So here's King Saul, and he's being mentioned here because he's a Benjamite. And so here was a man that didn't end well. By the way, he consulted a witch. I mean, all kinds of stuff. This guy was a mess. But he's still listed here in the genealogy when it talks about the Benjamites. And so it says there, near begat Kish, Kish begat Saul. So it says there right in the middle of the text there, let me find the verse. Somebody finds it before me. Verse 3. 30. 33. Where is it? 30, there it is. 33. It says, Near begat Kish, Kish begat Saul, Saul begat Jonathan. What kind of man was Jonathan? What kind of man was Jonathan? He was a godly man. Who was Jonathan's best friend? David. Jonathan was a mighty man. Jonathan went with his armor bearer to attack an entire, you know, garrison of soldiers. This guy was fearless and he loved the Lord, but his dad was a train wreck. And that's a blessing for all of us, an encouragement for us, that just because maybe you weren't blessed with the, the most godly family doesn't mean that God can't still do a work in you. Amen? It also means that ungodly parents are not an excuse to live an ungodly life. Amen? Now, that being said, we don't want to be the ungodly parents that are an ungodly example to our kids. We want to be in a godly example to them. Saul begot, it says Jonathan, and then it continues to go on talking about all these sons that continue to be born. So here's what that tells us, that even though Saul had blown it, even though Saul had the kingdom ripped from him, his descendants continued to be blessed by God because our God is a God of grace. Amen? Our God can deliver anybody out of any situation for his kingdom and for his glory. The word ner there begot kish, it's interesting, that, that, that name literally means in Hebrew, uh, a torch or a lamp. It literally means that he's shown with great godliness. And what's crazy about that is that he is Saul's grandpa. So Saul's grandpa was a man who shined brightly for God. And then Saul became king and got full of himself. And once he got full of himself, he ceased to be desperate for God. He didn't wait upon the prophet before he made sacrifices to fight in a battle. He trusted in his own strength. He'd won a couple battles. He puts all his faith in himself and he ends up with his life destroyed. That's an example. So here he had a godly grandpa with an ungodly grandson, a man who's shown brightly for the Lord. But then you see a godly son come from an ungodly dad. And again, it's all, for all of us, I know sometimes you want to blame our family. Or, and I'm not saying that having a, a, a rough family isn't difficult. I'm not saying that at all, because it can be. But that being said, we're not going to stand before Almighty God on Judgment Day with either our godly grandpa or our ungodly dad. Amen? We're going to stand before God on our own. And all of us has to make a choice. And we want to be a Christ-like example to our children. It says the son of Jonathan, his name was Meribal. They changed his name. Why is that? Why do you think they might have changed his name? It says in verse 34, who's Baal? We like him? No. no. I'm trying to figure out how Jonathan even let that name slip. How did that happen? Because see, again, idolatry does that. And he changed his name to Mahibosheth, which again is a, is a reference to someone who worships the Lord. 
It says, Azal had six sons, and these were his names. And again, uh, no doubt these uh, reputed. And it says of these men that they were men of holiness. They were men of great valor. So that's what we want to be. We want to be men and women of valor. We want to be men and women who are faithful to the Lord, to be served, uh, to serve him. It says of them later in secondary writings, it says that this tribe was filled with theologians. This family had a lot of people that loved the Lord, were faithful to teach the word. So again, here in Saul's family, we've got all kinds of, you know, through Jonathan's sons, we see mighty men of valor who teach the word without compromise, who study the Bible, who, who proclaim the truth, and had a grandpa who denied the Lord. And a grandpa, so praise God, I just want this to be an example for all of us because we should never make the excuse of, well, I'm the way I am because of my grandparents. Or I am the way I am because I'm Irish or Scottish or German. Well, it's because I'm Irish. That's why I drink 8,000 gallons of alcohol a day. That's not an excuse. <laughs> Amen. It's because I'm this. It's because I'm that. No, it's because you're a sinner, which we all are. Amen. But the good news is we can all meet on common ground at the foot of the cross. It says that the sons of Elam, there were mighty men of valor, and they were archers. In Hebrew, uh, the, the archery they had back then literally was so strong. It wasn't like the, the archery he's talking about here. You had to get on the ground, and you had to pull it super hard and lay down to let it go, and it let these mighty arrows fly. And so it speaks of these people who are mighty warriors in the midst of a family where they had an ungodly king. So men of valor coming in the midst of ungodliness. Now, chapter nine, chapter nine, may we return to where God called us to be. So says here in verse one, so all Israel was recorded by genealogies and indeed they were inscribed in the book of the Kings of Israel. But Judah was carried away captive to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. Now, Israel had already been carried away we see the genealogy and we see that there's godly and ungodly people in the midst of it. But notice why it says they were carried away. It doesn't say they were carried away because they lost a war. It doesn't say they were carried away because the wrong uh, you know, political party was in power. It doesn't say they were carried away for any other reason. Here's the reason, you ready? But Judah was carried away captive to Babylon because of their what? Unfaithfulness. See, it was their rebellion against God. It was their willingness to allow idolatry to run rampant. It was their, their again, you know, being a dead fish and just going with the flow and being like the culture and being like the world. We're called as believers to be in the world, but not of the world. You hear me say it often, you know, the boat's in the water, but we don't want any water in the boat. Amen. We want to minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. And sadly, here's what happens. He says, look, we read it again. All Israel was recorded by genealogy. So here's Israel, those 12 tribes. These are God's chosen people. They'd gone into the land of promise. He led them by the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud through the wilderness. He parted the Red Sea. He brought the plagues in Israel and Passover. The angel of death passing over delivered them out of bondage. And then when they got to the land of promise, they sent spies into the land and 10 came back and said, oh, there's giants in there. We can't win. And Caleb and Joshua said, oh, the Lord, if God is for us, let's go. Well, they end up wandering in the wilderness. That entire generation dies. Then they step out in faith. They put their foot in the Jordan. God gives them victory. They wipe out their enemies. They're in a land flowing with milk and honey. God's blessing them mightily. And then they allow idolatry to come into the land. 
I know some of you have told you, it's never going to happen. We don't have to worry about it. But if I was president, I would outlaw every other religion tomorrow. And you all think that's crazy. When Jesus comes back, you think there's going to be any mosques up, up? What do you think? You think during the millennial reign, we're going to have mosques? You think we're going to have Hindu? Uh, uh, no, because God's on the throne. Amen? What did Elijah do? He kicked down all the idols. Amen? Again, I know it sounds crazy, but the reality is that these are all tools of Satan taking people that we should love straight to hell, and we should care about it. Amen? And that sounds so radical. It sounds so radical. You know why? Because we're more caught up in our constitution than we are the word of God. Amen? Praise God for the constitution. It's toast compared to this book right here. Amen? I get tired of Christians quoting the Constitution more than they quote the Bible. Read this. This is what changes people's lives right here. Amen? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by. It's the word of God. Amen? And praise God for our forefounders and all of that. I, I'm thankful for that. Because of them, we're doing this. Amen? We're able to freely meet. That's all wonderful. And I praise God for it. We need to stand for it. But guys, it's not just the freedom that we have. It's what we preach. Amen? So all of Israel was recorded. They're inscribed. Notice it says here the, the book of the kings of Israel. That's not first and second kings. It's actually a secondary writing that's written by secular writers that records all the kings that were in Israel. And I love when people tell you, well, the Bible, you know, you do know there's over 5,000 manuscripts, over 5,000 manuscripts that when you read them, agree 100% with the word of God. Amen. So we don't believe this book in spite of the evidence that would be foolish. There's archaeological evidence. Every time they turn over a shovel of dirt in Israel, the Bible's proven to be true again. People they say never existed, names that didn't exist, we're finding them more and more in archaeology. History proves the Bible to be true. Prophecy proves the Bible to be true. Amen? How many nations in the history of the world have ceased to exist for 2,000 years, have all their people scattered, become a nation again, and draw the people back into their place? That'd be one, and the Bible talked about it, and it's Israel. Amen? See, the word of God is true. We believe it. We know what it says. And we need to take a stand for it. And there are extra biblical writers that agree with the word. So now we get to verse 2, and he's going to skip 70 years when you get to verse 2. So, so Judah was carried away. They were carried away because of their, of their unfaithfulness. Judah lasted a lot longer because they did have some godly kings, remember? They had some, like Josiah. They had godly kings that stood up, godly kings that tore down the idols. And so they lasted, you know, many decades longer. But now they've been carried away too. Look at verse 2. And the first inhabitants who dwelt in their possessions, in their cities, were Israelites, priests, Levites, and Nethanim. Now, here's what he's saying. Dwelling in their possessions. What that really means is dwelling in the land that God gave them. So, the entire, all of Judah and Israel has been taken away to Babylon. Hundreds and hundreds of miles away. By the way, when they took them, they ran fishhooks through their lips, and they drug them off. Naked drug them off to the faraway land. Then they indoctrinated them. And it praised God that some of those people that went were people like Daniel. And when he was tried, they said you know, they wanted to change his name. They wanted to change his uh, faith to worship the false gods. And they wanted to change, start by changing his diet and just get him to go with the flow. And what did Daniel say? 
I will not defile myself with the king's God. I'm not doing it. I'm going to honor God. You know, the only way he knew to honor God, he knew what the word of God said. Amen? We need to know what the Bible says, and then we will honor it. By the way, the Bible's pretty clear. There's male and female. And marriage is between one man and one woman. Not one woman and ten men, or ten men and one man and ten women, and not two men and not two women. Amen? And people get all fired up. Oh, you're, you're being a bigot. No, I'm being biblical. Amen? We're gonna, and do we love everyone? What's the answer? Did Jesus die for all of them? We want to minister to them. But you know what? If somebody's headed off a cliff, we want to need to love them enough to stop them. Amen? And to share with them the truth. So he's telling them, look, so everybody's been carried away and they get to verse two. So he completely skips over 70 years of captivity between verse one and two. There's 70 years of captivity. And now he's talking about them coming back into the land that God had given them, the land of promise, that land flowing with milk and honey that's not so flowing anymore. That's going to be need to be replanted. For 70 years, it's laid barren. Now, I love the Bible and the Bible rocks because one of the things that Israel was guilty of is every sixth year, they were supposed to let the land sit for a year and grow nothing on it. And it's amazing that I've learned this from uh, people I've talked to about agriculture, that a land will always grow more if you have it grow for six years and lay dormant for a year. You actually get more out of it because it, it gives it a chance to recover. Well, they, had, they were there for 490 years and they never had a Sabbath year in 490 years. So God got them all in one fell swoop. 70 years. They were taken out of the land and now they're coming back. And now they're going to start from scratch and rebuild. You know what that means? They got to be desperate for God. They're going to have to cry out to the Lord. They're going to come back and see the Jerusalem, you know, in rubble. They're going to see the temple completely destroyed. The walls that surround the city are gone. They've left Babylon where they're comfortable. They left Babylon, the wealthiest place on the planet at that time. It's like leaving the United States or, you know, somewhere in Europe and going to a place where there's nothing. And that's where God sends you. And you go there with, and you have to start from scratch. And that's what they're going to do. The, chronicle, the, the, the person here who wrote this, who God used to write, the Holy Spirit who wrote it, he's been speaking about their past, the first eight, nine chapters, first eight chapters into the ninth chapter. And now he's going to speak about their present and their future, what's coming next. And that's what we'll see through the rest of the book. All this means, again, he's taking the history of Israel a stage further because first and second Kings, have, the way it ended was, we're hopeless, we're done. We've been taken away into captivity and there's hope that something could change. Now, 70 years later, it's happened. 70 years later, they're being set free. 70 years later, they can go back into the land. But the land they're going to go back into is going to be difficult, a difficult place to live. Now, these people that went back really are heroic, if you think about it. If somebody came to you, how many of us, some of us would go, Imagine if someone came to you and said, oh, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but you're from this place. And by the way, it's radioactive. There's nothing there left. It's been desolate for 70 years. And God's calling you to take your family from your nice, comfortable home and your fridge full of food and your air conditioning and, take, and go to this faraway land and start and rebuild it all from scratch. Even though you've never been there in your life, it was your grandparents who messed up, but you need to go back because that's the land God has for you. It's a lot easier to say you do it than to do it. Amen? 
And that's what they're being asked to do. I'm comfortable here in Babylon. This is the only place I've ever known. I have friends here. This is where I've always lived. I think sometimes our comfort is the enemy of God's calling. Most returning had never been to Israel. Many were prosperous and comfortable. And so when the opportunity arose, while the circumstances were just like the the last generation, see, in a lot of ways, they had something in common with their grandparents and parents because they were ripped from their home where they were comfortable against their will. And now they're being told to leave the home where they're comfortable according to their will. And that might be even harder because when you're ripped away, you have no choice, but now they're given a choice. And so it's very heroic for those who do say, okay, we're going to trust God. Now remember, they have to know God by, while being surrounded by the idolatry of the Babylonians. There's no temple in Babylon. There's no sacrifices being made. There's very, I'm sure there's people like Daniel, but there's very few people teaching the word. And so you've got to leave that all behind and come. And that's exactly what's going to take place. They left the only home they'd ever known to go to a place they've never been and required faithful obedience and surrender to God's calling. From comfort and prominence to hardship and a barren land, they're going to have to leave their comfort zone alone. And as I mentioned, they came in three waves. First came Zerubbabel with a group. And they began to just restore the, the temple and restore, start to restore the city. Then Ezra came sometime later and Ezra comes and he starts preaching the word again and reminding them of what they've been taught and what the Bible says and about sacrifices. And then behind them would come Nehemiah and Nehemiah is going to br- bring a group that is going to come in and begin to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. So no longer is there going to be a kingdom of Judah and a kingdom of Israel anymore. They're all going to just be referred to as Israelites. So great trial has actually brought them back together. And now they're going to come back together united, called here by that general name, name given to them before the rampant idolatry had come through Solomon and his idolatrous wives dividing Israel into two nations. You know what's interesting? Idolatry divided a family. There's nothing new under the sun. Amen? If you have people that are godly and love the Lord, you may have some that think that we're crazy, think that we're simpletons, you know, and they're so chasing after the world and it can bring division. Now we should do all that we can to continue to be in relationships with them because we shouldn't be surprised when people who don't know God act like they don't know God. Amen? But we shouldn't be surprised either when there's a division. When God is the priority and passion of your life, to the world, you're an alien. But guess what? We are aliens because this is not our home. Amen? This is not our home. So Israel's been restored when the Israelites are united into one nation and uh, signs of their former division are being blotted out and praise God for that. And it says there, in their pos- now who dwelt in their possessions. And the idea here is the people of Israel came back to their ancestral lands. They returned to the land of promise that God had given them from the days of Moses and Joshua. This term was used all the time in their possessions, their ancestral land. Terms used frequently by Moses and Joshua, while the conquering nations would usually take over their conquered lands and remove all the memory. God, is, God had kept their land intact. There'd been some people that had lived there from the the kingdoms that had defeated them, but eventually they left. And so the land just sat there empty and God left it there so they could come back to it. And I believe the same is true for the calling God has placed on your life. 
I truly believe that even if you've stepped away for days, weeks, months, years, or decades, that it's still possible to come back to the Lord and go back to do the very thing he may have called you to do a long time ago. Because that's exactly what he's doing with the children of Israel here. And, and God's not done with you. Look, as long as you're breathing in and out, God can still use you. Amen? And he wants to use you. 70 years again, they finally kept all their Sabbaths. And again, it just, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the prodigal son. When I look at this, God, God knew they would rebel. God allowed them to be taken captive. He saw all the ungodly things they were doing. They were taken away to a foreign land and he kept their land available to them because he knew that one day they were gonna come back. And that's a loving and a gracious God, amen? And some of you, maybe you've walked away and the Lord is keeping that place for you because he knows you're coming back. And again, my prayer for all of us, again, you can take a million steps away. It's only one step back. Notice it says right below uh, the, the Israelites, it says the Isra- possessions in there to the Israelites, the priests, the Levites, and the Nethanim. Now, the priests and Levites, these are, and Nethanim were three categories of workers at the temple who would work to restore the temple and worship, and worship in the days of Ezra. They, were, uh, they had, would work whatever was needed. And I love this. This is the example. The priests were the descendants of Aaron who could make sacrifices and take care of the holy place. The Levites were a much broader class of religious workers who served in many ways, practically, artistically, and spiritually led worship. And the Nethanim were special servants given to the temple. Some of them had been taken captive. The Midianite woman in Numbers 31, Gibeon in Joshua 9. Uh, and we see those things taking place. But what I love about this is that when they were called, they had a heart to do whatever was necessary. And when I'm looking for people who are called, I'm looking for somebody who's willing to, you know, I've been, I've been assistant pastors in small churches and a really big church. And then I've been a senior pastor at a church that was much larger than this one and in a smaller church. And here's what happens in every church, no matter where you are. There's always more to do than there are people willing to do it. So like when I served at Calvary San Jose, the church was 3,000 plus people and every pastor was overseeing four or five or six ministries. That's just how it worked out. And it was amazing because we'd all talk about this. I'd be in my office in the middle of the night studying because I worked my full-time job and then came and did stuff in the office. And I'd hear, I'd hear a vacuum cleaner going at 3 a.m. And I'd go out there, Rob McCoy's out there vacuuming the sanctuary at 3 a.m. And I walk by something else and a guy's painting the crying room. Why? Because when you're called, you just, you just serve wherever the need is. Amen? And you know someone's not called when they'll only do what they want to do. Well, I'd like to serve here. Great, we need some people here at eight o'clock to set up chairs. Oh, well, I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking, I'll run the barbecue during the agape feast or whatever, right? <laughs> you know, something that I want. Look, guys, servant means I'll do whatever is needed, amen? And recognize we're doing it. If you give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, everything that's due, we do, let's do it for the Lord, amen? Now, those who settled in Jerusalem, we're going to see four tribes right off the bat here. Look, it says there in verse three. Now in Jerusalem, the children of Judah dwelt, some of the children of Benjamin and the children of Ephraim and Manasseh. So these are the four tribes that are going to spearhead the return. They're going to be the first ones to go. And again, they were largely dwellers down in the southern portion of Israel, the portion that was once called Judah, because one of the first things that needs to take place is the temple needs to be rebuilt. 
and the land needs to be restored in preparation for the others who will be coming later. So these four tribes go out and these are the guys who will, you know, they're general contractors, man. Whatever needs to be done, we'll just go. And we're ready to do it. And we want to serve how, in any way that we can. And God sends them out first. The sons of Judah and Benjamin. And again, these tribes dwelt in Judah prior to the exile. So they were going home. When you get down to verse 10 to 13, it talks about the, the leaders in Jerusalem. First, the leaders among the priests, Jedediah and, and Azariah, the son of Hilkah. And it talks about all the leaders amongst the priests there in verses 10 to 13. And it says they were very able men. Now I like this again. They were very able men. And literally the same phrase is translated mighty men of valor in other Old Testament passages in Joshua 1.14 and Judges 6.12 and 1 Samuel 16. And so what it's saying is they were very able men and they were mighty men of valor. So here's what that tells me. If someone is going to serve in ministry, they need to be a mighty man or woman of valor. Amen? The ministry is not for the faint at heart. Well, yeah, I was trying to help out that church, but nobody thanked me after two weeks. I'm out of there. Okay. I won't mention the name, but I had a senior pastor. I served under him for six years. I did more ministry. I mean, I did a lot of ministry. And uh, when he, the next time he says thank you to me will be the first time in my life. It doesn't happen. If you're doing it for the Lord, you do it for the Lord. Amen? Now, I'm, a, now I'm the opposite. I will thank you. I will come and say, thank you. I appreciate you. God bless you. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But if you're only doing it for that, you're doing it for the wrong reason. Amen? So the encouragement should be, hey, look, a, a mighty man of valor, these, these uh, have a heart for ministry, mighty men of valor. And, and that, I love that, that th- for they are mighty men. It just means that they're, they're not going to grow weary in well-doing. They're not going to get tired of serving others. They're not going to get tired of doing ministry. Because when God calls you, God sustains you. But if I call you, I have to sustain you. That's why I don't call anybody. Because people come to me and say, what ministry should I do? I don't know. You ask the Lord. Because if the Lord calls you, the Lord will sustain you. If I call you, I have to sustain you. I'm already doing enough. I can't do that. Amen? It's not going to happen, right? So we want to, and that's why the first thing I look for, look, you could be the most gifted Bible teacher who ever's walked the planet. And if you're not a way to put up a chair, you'll never teach a Bible study at this church. It's that simple. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, we want to be the what? Servant. servant of all. So we want to see a servant's heart. There's 15 qualifications for a pastor. 14 speak of character. Only one speaks of gifting. We want to be godly men and women of godly character. Amen? It should be reflected in the heart and the way that we love to serve people. It's a get to, not a... Now again, I, I don't like that too much, but people are blown away that I give my cell phone to everyone. And all my pastor friends are like, you've lost your mind. No, I love my people. Amen? I had a guy commit suicide trying to get a hold of me on the church phone, and I didn't get it till the next morning. And in the middle of the night, I got a call from the police. I went to his house, and then I went to my house, and I listened to the church phone. And he's like, Pastor Dave, Pastor Dave, I don't think I can do this anymore. I need you to help me. Call me, please. And I didn't get the message until after he was dead. And I helped carry his body out of his living room with his weeping. And I went in and told my assistant pastor that day, get me a cell phone and put it on everything. Give it to everyone. Because you know what? If we're servants, we got to be available. Amen? Amen? Be available. 
I'm not saying, again, make time for your family. I get that. But you know, God will give you the ability to balance those two things. So leaders amongst the priests, we saw that they were very able men, mighty men of valor. They were willing to do whatever it took. They were not faint at heart. They were not, by the way, you can't be easily offended in ministry or you won't last. I forget the analogy. The guy said, you need to have the, you know, something, a brain of this. And then he said, in the skin of a rhinoceros to be a pastor because people are going to attack you. And if I've done something wrong, then I will come before the Lord and I will, I will be accountable for that. But I, you know, at the same time though, if you're easily offended, you'll, you'll leave quickly. The pastor didn't say hi to me on Sunday. I'm out of here. Easily offended. Don't be. Do it for the Lord. You now it says leaders among the Levites. Now who are the Levites? They're the tribe. Now all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. But Levites were, had no, again, no inheritance in the land. And what were they called to do? They were called to serve spiritually. Again, they, they did practical things. They helped rebuild the temple, protect the city. They served the people. They restored worship. And again, they would serve wherever they were needed. That's verse 14 to 16. Then verse 17 to 34, we see, look at the Levites. It says they were gatekeepers. So here's what happens. They're, that's not a job you see when they talk about the Levites, but when you're first moving into a new land and you're having to rebuild it, someone's got to open the gate in the morning. Someone's got to close the gate at night. Someone's got to guard the gate. It's going to say that they go in four different directions and they're all serving in real practical ways. And so there's the heart of a servant. He doesn't look to be served. Pastor Chuck used to light pastors up. So I'll just take you behind the veil a little bit. We go to the senior pastor's conference. First message, almost every conference, touch not the wine, touch not the women, touch not the money, touch not the glory. And he'd say, turn around. There's 3,000 guys in this room. Some of you won't be here next year because you'll be disqualified. And by the way, I've seen some of the cars out in there. And if you work full-time at your church, you need to repent and go sell that thing because some of those cars are way too expensive for you to be driving. <laughs> Pastor Chuck, gloves off, man. And he said, and I, and I see some of you guys getting out and you got your assistants and they're all carrying your bags. Who do you think you are? You should be carrying their bags. I'm like, amen. I remember going to Calvary Costa Mesa. I'd go on the parking lot and Pastor Chuck would be on his hands and knees scraping gum off the driveway. That's what a servant is, amen? We, we want to elevate pastors. We elevate nobody but Jesus, right? We're servants. He's the king, Amen. He alone do we worship and praise and honor. So they, they, they took care of the gates. They, again, it's good to, notice it said they lived right near the temple. I'm just going to paraphrase for you because we're out of time. But they live right near the temple. I tell people this all the time. It's good to live where, near where you go to church. And I know there's exceptions. In Santa Cruz, we had people, because we're on a radio station that was big, we had people driving 100 miles to church. I'm like, you, you drive by 500 churches on the way here. And 10 Calvary chapels. We'll hear you on the radio and we just feel at home here. But the hard part is you can't get involved midweek. It's hard to serve, right? It's hard to have people over for dinner. You want to come to my house? Well, leave at 2.30 and you can be at my house at 7, right? And so it's hard. And I really try to encourage people. I have friends. I just met a guy when I went in. I have a torn... Uh, rotator cuff. And I went and got the MRI and I prayed for divine appointments, started talking to the guy. He drives all the way to Jack Hibbs Church. I said, that's a great church. You go to midweek stuff? Well, that's kind of hard. I said, possible. <laughs> I see no 405 and no way. The 15? I said, bro, there's three Calvary chapels in town, five Calvary chapels in town. If you want to go to Oxnard or Camarillo, get plugged into a local church. Amen. And that's, so it's good that we find a church near us where we can get involved, where we can be a part of a, we're family in here, amen? 
This is a big family. I love you guys more than I can ever even put into words. So they're putting the city back together. The Levites that returned, there's even a description of them that they were gatekeepers. And again, that they had special vessels, that they were the anointing oil, they were singers. They just did whatever was necessary. And then finally, the last portion there, verse 35 to 44, we're going to start talking about Saul. Let's finish with this. And next week, we're going to see the tragic end of King Saul in chapter 10. We're going to move away from a genealogy. And this genealogy is all pointing to King David, but it's going to take a sidebar to King Saul, the first king in chapter 10. So there it talks about the family of King Saul. And, and notice again, you go down a little ways and it says, Kish begat Saul, Saul begat Jonathan. For emphasis, some of the genealogy in the line of Saul, both before him and after him, is listed. And this was to emphasize the fact that God did not wipe out the line of Saul and that his descendants lived to the days of Ezra and the return of exile. So even though Saul was ungodly, we've already talked about this, God still showed grace and there were those who repented and were used mightily by God, starting off with his son, Jonathan, and people. So he had a godly grandpa and he had a godly son and he had godly grandsons and great-grandsons, even though he had failed miserably. Uh, the genealogy continues, if you read through the end of it, for 12 generations after Saul. And the fact that his dynasty, again, crashed in his kingship was transferred to David, did not remove the family's place in Israelite history. And I love that. See, God's grace, Saul rebelled against God. And again, he received the consequences, but his family continued on, not doomed by Saul's sin. They still had their own opportunity to walk with the Lord. I would encourage you, if you have the time, to continue to read through the genealogies there. I know we just hit some main points there, but Next week, we're going to pick up with King Saul. So, so, so far in the first nine chapters, it started with Adam, then it went to Noah, then it went through Shem, all the way down to Jacob, then the 12 tribes of Israel, and then we saw them banished because of what they've done, and now God is bringing them back into the land to restore worship to the true and living God. What an example for all of us, amen? So, compromise is the enemy of calling, we don't want to allow ourselves to compromise with the world. We're all uniquely gifted. May we be faithful to use our gifts. Pride goes before destruction. The Ephraimites were, had wealth and power and prowess. But again, we saw that it led to destruction. Uh, again, the Benjamites were mighty in battle as well. But we, and we are engaged in a daily spiritual battle, if you don't know that. Amen? The enemy, when do you struggle the most? Here's when most people struggle the most. When you're alone. Is that true or not? When you're alone with your thoughts, you're in your car, you're alone in your house, whatever it might be, and the enemy will just come after you hard. And that's why the Bible says to forsake not the gathering yourselves together and all as the more days approaches. Amen? We need to be in fellowship. Pick up the phone. You've all got my cell number. If you don't have it, my card's on the back table. You call me at 2 a.m. I promise you I'll, I'll, I'll answer it. We're all family here. Amen? We're here to minister to each other. And then may we be mighty men and women of valor, and then may we return to where God has called us to be. And again, maybe you're here and maybe you are being used by the Lord in a mighty way at one time. It's not too late. Maybe you know that God's got a calling and a gifting on your life and you haven't really been stepping out. Can I encourage you like these Israelites who are now in Babylon, it's time to get out of your comfort zone and go back to the place where God wants to use you. Amen? Right. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for 
In the last nine chapters, we've gone through several, we've gone through thousands of years of history and we see your hand is upon all of it. You're a faithful God. You're in control. We can trust you. And even in our rebellion, Lord, you, you hold a place for us to come back. And I thank you for your grace and your mercy. And Lord, I pray for every one of us that, Lord, you would stir up the gifts you've given us, that we would not be satisfied with saved souls and wasted lives. At the same time, if someone's new in their faith, may they just rest in your grace. May they take this time to get to know you better. And may we love and minister to people. We pray for divine appointments this week. We pray for opportunity to invite people to church uh, next Thursday for the Good Friday service and next Sunday. Lord, we pray for the school here. We thank you for the baptism last week. We're over 80 kids got baptized. Thank you, Lord. We thank you for the work you're doing on this campus. And Lord, continue, Lord, to increase your kingdom. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said...